So, um, when we introduced John's Gospel, we said that the first half of the Gospel focused on the seven signs which exemplify the divine power of Christ, and signs are John's word for miracles. miracles. Good. Somebody was paying attention. And miracles is, um, miracles is what he's talking about, but signs is a really good word choice for him to use because miracles have a purpose. I mean, obviously they often bless people, and that's that's totally true, but they always point to something, right? Or I should say someone. They're pointing to someone. They force us to ask the question, well who is this that can do things like that, right? And the, is the great Jewish theologian named Nicodemus said to Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 2, he says, Rabbi we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I mean that's so clear you would think. So he got the message and he followed the signs to their logical conclusion. They were pointing to Jesus and eventually Nicodemus became a believer in Jesus. So in John's gospel signs point to the divinity of Christ. He is God in human flesh. That's, that's the great theme of the whole gospel. Unlike the other three gospels John doesn't give a whole lot of miracles. He just he mentions that there are a lot but he only talks about these seven because he's got a very specific purpose. Um, each sign leads to a conversation with Jesus or a discourse by Jesus, you know, some great thing. In chapter 5, for example, we had the healing of the man who had been an invalid for 38 years and suddenly he was made well, right? And that healing which Jesus chose to do on the Sabbath led to this amazing discourse to the temple authorities about who he really is. And that's what we've been studying recently. Now we come to chapter 6 and we're going to find two signs, two more signs, and it's immediately followed, um, the f well, one is really public and one is just for the disciples. So th they're different in that way. So it starts with the very public one, which is the fourth sign in the gospel, and it's immediately followed by the fifth sign, which is for the disciples to witness, okay? The fourth sign, which starts chapter 6, is where we are now, is going to lead to another major discourse. So you've got the sign, then you've got another sign privately, and then the subject of the first sign comes back and there's a long conversation, a very long conversation. In fact, that's why chapter 6 is 71 verses long. And we're going to cover it all today. <laughs> You're laughing like it won't happen. Okay, I lied. It's, we're, we're not really going to, yeah, I'm kidding, yeah. There we go. So, uh, we're going to start on it today though. So the fourth sign, the fourth sign is the only miracle except for the resurrection of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. So that's how many they have to choose from. But um, this one is uniquely important um, somehow. And uh, there's something about it that really captures the mind in, in a way different from healings and some of those kind of things. Even giving sight to the blind, I mean big things that are marvelous, but um, there's something about this one, it's impossible, they're all impossible by human understanding, but this one's so big, it's so public, I guess that's it. It grabs us in kind of a different way than a lot of the other ones. And skeptics love to mock this one more than almost anything else Jesus did, except maybe for sign five, which comes right after it in this chapter. So the sign we're looking at today is the feeding of the 5,000. 
It may well be three or four times uh, 5,000 because Matthew gives the number is 5,000 and then he says besides the women and the children. So if you put if a, if a lot of women and children were there it could easily be 20,000 or something like that right so we don't know how many but there were 5,000 men according to him so now John who was there he's an eyewitness gives us details that the other gospels don't give us but they perfectly harmonize with Matthew and Mark and Luke so here's how John begins the narrative Ch- John chapter 6 verse 1 after these things chapter 5 Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. The Romans called the Sea of Galilee Tiberias. They named it after an emperor. A large crowd followed him and because they saw because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So there's a lot of signs mentioned there but not detailed right. So there's more than the seven but um, he only focuses on seven. So they saw the signs they're following Jesus the, all the healings that he did. Verse 3, then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So why did he go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee? So that would be um, in the easterly direction on the eastern side. Most of the activity in the larger cities were on the western side. And that's where his ministry was located around Capernaum and things like that. Um, why did he go to the other side? Well big things were happening. If you read where the feeding of the 5,000 occurs in the other gospels. John the Baptist had just been murdered by King Herod Antipas. So that just happened. And also the apostles had been sent out on a large preaching tour. They went out two by two and preached the kingdom of God all over northern Israel. And they, they had just come back. So they, they're exhausted. Uh, it's been a, a, a huge thing going on. So Jesus decides they all need a break. Okay. Yes even Jesus took a break. So some of you that work too hard every now and then take a break. That's the lesson for today. <laughs> no that's not. That's, that's a side. That's a side thing. But, so Mark, Mark says it this way. He says in uh, Mark, Mark 631. It says he said to them. To the disciples. Come away by yourselves. To a secluded place. And rest a while. And then Mark adds. For there were many people coming and going. And they did not even have time to eat. And then he says they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. So they take a boat across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida which is on the other side. And people saw them get into the boat and people along the shore saw them going. So they start following on foot. And the word gets down you know it's not that fast on the boat so everybody's moving there. They didn't have a motorboat they had to wait for the wind. So verse 33 of Mark uh, Mark 6 he says the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Now I would have been frustrated there goes our vacation. That would have been my, <laughs> my reaction. But Jesus is a much better person than I am. So what is, well, instead of that, what does he feel in his heart? Compassion. Compassion, right? No matter how tired he was, no matter how worn out he was, no matter how difficult things were, no, no matter how dangerous they were, one of the reasons I'm sure he left is because of what happened to John the Baptist that particular time. And it wasn't his time yet. But he felt compassion. So he stayed there. And worked another long day uh, ministering to those people. So Matthew tells us that they also he healed their sick as well. 
So as brutal as his ministry had been, not even having time to eat, Jesus spends all day ministering to people on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, so John chapter 6 here, verse 3, might be referring to a latter part of that day when Jesus withdrew way up onto the mountain. It says, then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. That isn't recorded in the other gospels, but it's pretty clear from verse 5 uh, in John chapter 6 that the people weren't about to go home. They weren't ready. So they followed him, right? So let's pick it up at verse 4 there. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. That tells you the season, and that's fairly important later. Sort of a time stamp there. Then verse 5, therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these may eat? So verse 4 is just kind of a time stamp there. And verse 5 suggests that Jesus withdrew partway up the mountain like it says in verse 3 and the crowds were following so I think he's ministering all day he starts to pull back up the crowds are still coming and following and he looks up and he sees more people coming so it 20,000 people is a lot of people that's a lot of people so all these people are all around and um the other gospels all say it was late in the day. So people would be hungry typically. The other gospels also say that the 12 disciples told Jesus it was time to send the crowd away. Right? Lord we've been here all day. It's time to tell the people to go home. And Jesus doesn't take their advice. Be- well it's, it's reasonable advice. I mean they don't know that one of the greatest miracles in the Bible is going to happen. <laughs> on that day. They don't, the 12 don't know that. They're not aware of that. The, and the disciples give a really good reason for wanting to send them away. Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9 verse 12 it says, send the crowd away, they're telling him, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For we are here in a desolate place. Where they were just wasn't a crowded place. There weren't any nearby towns. So he says, let them go so they can go, you know, get some food and lodging if they need it or whatever. It makes perfect sense. No way can we feed this crowd away from resources like we are out here. That's the, uh, that's the thing. Perfectly logical. Send them away. This was a spontaneous event, remember. It was not a planned thing. So they don't have everything all worked out, you know, and like, like marvelous women's conferences might have. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have all that worked out. So uh, no cupcakes, nothing. <laughs> So uh, it just makes perfect sense. Send them away. But Jesus has other plans. He has other plans. So first he wants, he wants the disciples to grasp how impossible it really is to feed everyone. They already know. But he wants to kind of emphasize it for them. That's why in verse 5 he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people might eat? It's not like he knows or thinks that Philip knows because in fact, what does it say after that? He knew what he was going to do, right? Verse 6, this he was saying to test him for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Okay, so he wasn't really asking, hey, you know, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? He says, Philip, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? So Philip can look around, but, and Philip doesn't know that he's doing that. So Philip he must have been the calculator in the group. He starts, let's see, we've got probably 20,000 people out there. How much? Yeah, yeah, we need all of this, right? So, 
Um, so he wants, he wa- Jesus wants them to do their best thinking about how to solve this problem. And Philip's kind of aghast, you know, with the question. So Philip looks at the crowd, he starts calculating, he estimates the crowd, and he comes to this conclusion. Nope. <laughs> nope. Can't do it. So verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. So he's the calculator, right? He's got it all figured out. What's in the purse? 200 denarii. Uh, let's see, 20,000 people, 200. Nope. That's not enough for everyone to receive even a little. You couldn't get half a cupcake for this. <laughs> now 200 denarii, a, denar- a denarius was the, a day's wage for a common laborer. Okay, so it's a day's wage. So 200 denarii, it's not a lot of money, but it's a pretty good chunk of money. That's probably what was in the purse that Judas was holding for the group. And it's not a small amount, but it's not enough to feed 20,000 people either. It's just not going to happen. So Philip can count, and it's not enough. Not even for a little bite. Can't be done. And Mark's gospel also tells us that Jesus asked the 12 to count how much food they had. How many loaves do you have, he says. Go look, he says. This is in Mark chapter 12. I mean, not chapter 12, it's in Mark's gospel in that that chapter 6. So again, he wants them to see the scope of the problem. Now, Andrew has been kind of paying attention to the crowd, at least the people nearby Jesus there where he was, and uh, looking at them, and he spots a little boy with some lunch. He had one of those moms that prepares the kid for any eventuality, (laughs) you know. I can hear mom. Yes, Caleb, Uncle Samuel will take you to see Jesus today, but mommy is packing you a lunch and you're going to take it with you and it's <laughs> in case you get hungry, right? So he's one, she's one of those moms. So um, how much does he have? He has five loaves, it says, and two fish, right? So the word for loaves suggests, we think of a loaf as like a loaf of bread, right? That word, it, this referring to a little cake, like a little round cake. So he's got five little bits of bread and it's barley bread is the word that's used here that's the that's the bread that poor people made and so he's got five barley loaves or, or cakes or sort of like a pancake size thing and um, so verse 9 Andrew calls the Lord's attention to this little lunch and he says well you know you're asking for food and this little boy has some food he says there's a lad here who has five bar- five barley loaves and two fish but what are these for so many people? Good question. The good thing to say. It's, it's nothing. There's, there's no food. There is no food. There is no solution to the problem you're giving us. There's no solution. And so that's exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. So verse 10, Jesus says, have everybody sit down. <laughs> so there's 20,000 people. So the disciples have to go through the crowd and work everybody and, and get them placed, right? So... Um, The other Gospels include the fact that Jesus instructed the disciples to have people sit in groups of 50, 50 or 100. So if you take 20,000 people and put them in groups of 50, that's still like a couple of hundred groups, right? You've got a couple hundred groups of people of 50 and he just tells them to get them all to sit down. And so they're trying to organize this big picnic and there's no food yet. Fortunately, it was spring, so the, that's part of verse 4, the Passover idea, where it's almost Passover, so it's spring, and one of the Gospels mentions that it's grassy, it's green grass on the ground, right? So uh, it's kind of a nice place to sit if you've got food for the picnic. So the scene is set, now for the miracle. 
And it's an astounding miracle. It's a things just like that don't happen miracle. That's the kind of miracle this is, right? So verse 11, um, and see how simply John, John just says it so straightforward and simply like he doesn't go, wow, you know what happened? He just says, Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. Now, some miracles are seen by only a few people. Some miracles are maybe seen by a hundred people, you know, in a large crowded thing where a healing takes place or something like that. This one was seen by thousands and thousands of people. So that's why it's so significant. And I think that's why it's recorded in all the gospels. It's huge. It's huge. It's a memorable event. They not only saw it, they, in the sense they touched it, right? They physically experienced this miracle. Everyone there. And there's more. Um, I suppose an epic miracle involving food should have a little seasoning thrown in. But in this case, the seasoning in the story is just that there was leftover food. So not only did he feed everybody, all these people, there was leftover food. So verse 12, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. So it's that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's, that's an amazing miracle. Now, to me, it's always interesting to hear what unbelievers say about miracles that Jesus did. This one's pretty hard to ignore. It's actually pretty hard to explain because it was so public and so many people were there and this just can't happen, right? It's not like somebody felt like they got better or whatever. That, that you can't rationalize it away kind of a thing. So what does one do with a well-witnessed event, if you believe that the physical world is all there is, right? If you're a materialist, and you believe that matter is all there is, and it's a closed universe, and nobody's outside the universe like God, acting on our, our world here, if you're a, only the material realm is, is real, then what happened here, right? What happened? Well, there's two explanations that, that come out. One is, um, one is the idea that Jesus and the disciples had a secret stash of food <laughs> in a cave uh, on this mountaintop, so right nearby, and, and they snuck it out while Jesus pretended to make it or something like that. That's one explanation. What's wrong with that explanation, <laughs> other than being silly? It's, this thing was not planned. This was spontaneous. People just came. It wasn't like, we're going to have a big event. And they advertised it and uh, put it on Facebook and had a commercials on TV and all that. They didn't do that. People just came. They saw them traveling on the boat and just came in the thousands. So it wasn't a planned event. They couldn't have done that. Plus, that's an awful lot of food to store in some desolate location. Um, again, major planning would have been essential for all that. It, this was spontaneous. And somebody would have noticed, hey, do you notice those guys keep going into that cave over there? And they're <laughs> dragging something out like the baskets of food. It prob- and of course, is it probable that the greatest moral teacher on earth would stoop so low as to fool people with a goofy bread trick? I mean, <laughs> it just, that just doesn't work. Now, the other view, the other materialist view, if you will, is sort of sweet. It's a much sweeter view. And that's that Jesus teaching during the day and the little boy offering up his mom's lunch to to Jesus moved people to bring out their own food which they apparently were hiding under their robes. And and they started to share it. So 
Everybody's mommy made a lunch and they all had something <laughs> except maybe a few people and they all sat down and they all shared what they had. So Jesus inspired everyone to be generous. One writer said it this way, to transform what we call human nature, releasing it from its ego cage is the greatest miracle of all. Okay, well that might be true, but that might mean it might be the greatest miracle of all, but this is a miracle, miracle, miracle. <laughs> this is like a wow miracle. This is like this can't happen miracle. It's not just people getting generous because, oh, he melted my heart today. I'm going to share my lunch. It's, that is not a level of a miracle that would put it in all four gospels and that the world would talk about forever. That's not that. It's sweet, but it's like a Christmas Hallmark movie or something, but it's not, it's not what happened on that day. Where there's no way that that's what happened because there's not even a hint in the stories that that's what happened, right? Uh, so the idea, that idea was actually invented by theologically liberal ministers from probably 80 years ago who denied the miracles of Jesus and a lot of the large denominations, they stopped believing in all that stuff a long time ago. And they just had to come up with some explanation so that, oh, you know, and it fits with their social gospel sort of theory, you know. It's like, let's just love each other and be kind to each other. That's all God wants. We don't have to worry about this and miracle stuff or Jesus is God or dying for sins or any of that stuff. Just be nice to each other. There's a lot of churches that that's mainly what they believe. But that's not what happened. So just as Jesus turned water into the best wine, John chapter 2, so he turns a few barley cakes and two fish into a feast for thousands of people. He did that. How could he do that? He's God, people. <laughs> he can do that. If you can make the universe, you can make bread. <laughs> it's not that hard. Not hard for him. So it really did happen. Now, what's the lesson for us in this story? What's our takeaway from this? Well, I think the main thing, of course, is that it's a sign. That's what John's pointing to who Jesus is. It's a sign. It's for us to recognize this is not normal. This couldn't happen. Only God could do this and that's who Jesus is. He's God. Now practically speaking for our Christians people will point out and I think you can draw encouragement from this event as well. God can take little things and do big things, right? I mean that, that is true. You give God yourself, your gifts, you offer him your little weakness, your five loaves and two fish, your, your pancakes and fish thing. You offer that to him and he can do things with it. In a, we're talking in a general way here, right? You give, Jesus can multiply what we do more than we think. Just like I was sharing earlier about people sharing the gospel with somebody at work. You don't know what God can do. God can change a person's entire life because you, you brought the gospel to bear and shared Jesus with them and they accepted it and their whole life changed. To me, that's, that is a great miracle and um, you can do that. You can be part of that. So don't ever think about your resources or your giftedness as being, well, I'm too small. You know, I don't have really anything to offer. Well, the kid only had his lunch, you know. So God can take that and, and do wonderful things with that. Our resources are at the Lord's disposal. And the Lord, because he's so wonderful, can do a lot of things with your little gift or your little bit of service or your little participation in something. So think about that. Now, John is not done with this story. What follows is really, really important. And not mentioned in the other Gospels. This part isn't mentioned in the other Gospels. So for John, most of the signs lead to Jesus revealing who he is and why he came. That's why he puts them in there. And John includes this miracle in part it's included because it explains what happens in the rest of chapter 6. The last part of chapter 6. And this next long discourse of Jesus. 
there's going to be a big conversation with Jesus and the Jews and it's really important and this is what leads into that the miracle and the loaves the miracle of the loaves and the fish changes Jesus ministry in certain ways it's it it leads to the highest point of his popularity because it's so public and the word would get out right so it changes things dramatically but it's a popularity of the wrong kind and that's what matters and that's another reason this is in here what did we see in chapter 5 what did Jesus expose about the religious leaders in the temple after he healed that man that had been an invalid for 38 years what did he say it's in chapter 5 verse 42 you don't love God you don't have the love of God in you he says I know you and you don't have it what did they love what did he say chapter 5 verse 44 the praise of men they wanted to be well thought of that was their primary purpose for all their religiosity so how people thought of them and treated them was way more important than what God thought of them in their hearts they just didn't think about the Lord as their personal Lord they religion was a tool for their own egos to find expression and in the same way these folks who are not religious leaders they're just regular everyday people they show in chapter 6 what they really want the kind of Jesus they want Jesus if that happened to you wouldn't you want Jesus yeah they, they do want Jesus they want him to, and they want to put him in their box for the things that they want so the religious people have their agenda these average people have their agenda the problem with that is they don't want what he wants and that's really important because if you're going to follow Jesus you're not doing it because you want him so you can do what you want you're following him so you can do what he wants I know that's shocking but it's true look at verse 14 therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed they said this is truly the prophet who has come into the world so you remember from John chapter 1 um, the Jerusalem delegation that went to John the Baptist so the, the big shots in Jerusalem the priests sent a delegation of Levites and priests to John the Baptist to ask him who he was remember that and in verse 21 of chapter 1 they say are you Elijah and he says I am not they say are you the prophet and he says no because there is a special prophet they were kind of all waiting for now the people in Galilee are saying that Jesus must be the prophet like Moses and if you think about it because that's what that's what John 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 the Baptist that's what's a question they were referring to when they said are you the prophet they're talking about the prophet of Deuteronomy 18:15 that Moses talked about he said there will be a prophet like me right and if you think about it the making of bread is pretty easily connected in the Jewish mind with Moses after all it was Moses who didn't cause it to happen but he introduced the idea that God was going to bring manna and so the Jews that were in the wilderness they had the stuff on the ground every day you could make bread cakes out of right so um, that's connected with Moses in their mind so they could expect a miracle like that from a prophet like Moses when Moses said God will raise up for you a prophet like me so they're, they're kind of to the moon excited about Jesus doing this miracle wow he's a miracle worker I mean that was like enough for them but Jesus can see exactly where their minds were going and they're thinking well let's have the kingdom now 
But they're not talking about God's kingdom. They're talking about the kingdom they want. And that's the difference here. This must be the long-awaited kingdom of God, they're thinking. So verse 15, Jesus, now pay attention to this, perceiving, either he heard it or he just knew, because he could tell what they were talking about, that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So there arose among those in the crowd that were so desirous of the kingdom of God and there was a lot of speculation about the kingdom of God coming at that time. They were so filled with elation and so moved by religious and patriotic fervor that they planned to take Jesus, the bread man, the miracle worker, and rebel against Herod and against Rome and he would lead them. I mean, if you can make bread, you can knock down armies too. If he's got that kind of power. And Moses was not only a prophet, he was not only a lawgiver, he was a warrior, a leader of battles as well. You know, we've got enough guys here to start an army. <laughs> and how much fighting would we really have to do with him at our head? You know, he could say something and they would fall down. If he can create bed, bread, he can command victories. That is how the world thinks, worldly people think. How can this man benefit me? or us, or our cause. But Jesus isn't about their cause, he's about God's cause, right? There is a kingdom coming and it's coming in its time. This isn't the time and he knows that. At the end of John's gospel or near the end, you know, when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, we'll get there someday. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, he says. But that's not what he was doing. He had to die for sin, not take the world and be the king of the world. Jesus will not allow himself or his work to be co-opted by political opportunists. And that's what was going on. And we have to remember that ourselves in this day and age when politics infests so many different things. Jesus is not about a temporary fix for Israel. He is offering God's kingdom where righteousness dwells. But they must submit their wills to God in righteousness to, to receive that kingdom. And they're not there yet. So the people of Israel aren't anywhere near ready for the kingdom of God in its real nature. Now notice they think he's a prophet but they what are you supposed to do in the Old Testament with, if you want to do something big, you go see a prophet. Do you go to the prophet and grab them and make them king? No, you inquire of God. Shall we do this or that? Is it right for us to do this? Is that what they do? Jesus, we perceive that you are a prophet. Does God want you to be king over us so that we can take you and conquer Rome and whatever the thing might be? And he would say, no, that's not what it's about right now. But they don't do that. They, they want to take him by force, literally, and like stick him in the front of the crowd or something. If you're a real prophet, you're sp- if there's a real prophet in your midst, you're supposed to ask of God, what do you want us to do, Lord? They don't do that. So these are common people for the most part and they really haven't let Jesus' teaching sink in very well. They haven't listened carefully. 
they did not have God's interest at heart any more than the priests and the rabbis had God's interest at heart because they only cared about the praise of men. These people care about being free of Roman oppression, right? They longed for a violent revolution and, and a, generation, a generation after Jesus, they got their way. They did try to rebel against Rome, AD 70. So that was just a, less than 40 years after this event happened. AD 66, Jewish fighters destroyed an entire Roman legion, like 5,000 Roman soldiers, they wiped them out. And they thought that they had victory. They celebrated, they celebrated, it started a big war. Of course, Rome brought all its might from other parts of the empire and four years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground. Their existence as a people in the land pretty much ended. There were still Jews sort of living there. And Jesus foretold that that was what was going to happen. And that it happened reminds us of what was on the people's hearts in Jesus' day. We want a warrior Messiah. He came to save them from their sins. But they wanted a warrior Messiah. And then the Jewish survivors that still sort of lived in that area um, they had to endure a lot of indignities. The Romans banned circumcision eventually. They built a, a temple to Jupiter where the temple to God had been in, in Jerusalem. They made the Jews pay a tax to support the temple to Jupiter. Humiliated them utterly. So in AD 132 there was another great revolt and the most famous rabbi of the day declared a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba to be the Messiah. And just like what these people wanted here, he, he was going to be their king. He, he raised an army. He fought Rome. And guess what happened? He lost. <laughs> they were slaughtered. They were crushed. They were completely undone. And that's when Jews were not even allowed to live around Jerusalem after that time at all. And that's part of the great you know, the diaspora of the Jews started in AD 70, but by AD 132 it was done. It was pushed out. It was all over with. So, they were sure that it was God's will for them to fight Rome, and they were wrong. They were wrong about that. That's what happens when men exalt their personal interests over God's interests. Disasters happen. That's true personally, and it's true at a societal or national level as well. God is not our servant. He is the Lord. We are his servants. So whatever he wants us to be doing at a particular time is what we're supposed to be doing. And on the day Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, their hearts were not with what God was doing, but it, it excited them about what they wanted to do. Their plan, their timing, their desires. So verse 15, Jesus withdraws himself from them and he goes back up the mountain. But he's not done. A really big conversation has to happen and it's going to happen very soon and it's an amazing exchange with these people as they seek him out but first there's going to be another sign and that's the fifth sign not for these people but just for the apostles then Jesus will talk to the people about bread <laughs> it's a bread conversation he's going to have and that's the rest of the chapter he'll tell them that they're after the wrong bread and we'll start looking at the fifth sign next Sunday. Yes, that's right. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we want to be faithful to do your will, not ours. 
we want to read the great things in the scripture and not say, oh, that's exactly what I want to do. I'm going to take over and make make his will my will. That's, we're, we're not doing that. Your miracles are for your glory. Your commandments are for your glory. The things you tell us to do are for your plan to implement because you're the Lord of history and you're the Lord of all things and you're doing a particular thing in this day, the church age where, in which we live and we want to be right there with doing what you're wanting us to do. So we ask you to help us to put other personal interests aside even if they're good things in our minds but if they're not what you're about then let us do what you're about. We ask for the help in doing that Lord faithfully in Christ's name. Amen.